0: One, two, three. I'm guessing you haven't spent a lot of time thinking about key changes, but I promise that by the end of this episode, you're going to have a newfound appreciation and understanding of what a key change can do to your experience of a great song.
1: Welcome to the age-old question. I'm Rich Price. And I'm Clint Bierman. Each episode deals with another question in music fandom. The kind of questions that Clint and I have been debating since we were in college. So today, with the help of some smart people, we're going to come up with the answer. Okay, Clint, what's today's question? Today's question is, what is the greatest key change of all time? That's the age-old question. Clint, Set the table for the conversation. What is a key change? A key change, otherwise known as a modulation, is when you're playing in one tonal center and all of those chords relate to each other in a way that sounds like pop music, sounds like something you'd be listening to. Yeah. And then you change that tonal center entirely to have a new tonal center. So why do a key change? Well, there's a couple reasons to do a key change. One just to switch it up and I got a couple examples of that where it's just like you've been going for a second let's just do something different so go up a whole step or whatever the other reason to have a key change is to make something totally epic and I think that's what we're going to get into today are the ones that really lift the song into a new place that it hasn't been before I can't wait to hear what you've chosen you want to hear my first one I can't wait okay so my first one is a half-step key change. Oh, I can't wait. And it's from a song. This is so it's such an interesting choice. I feel like like you're gonna be like, what? But I try by Macy Gray. I
2: try, to say and I choke. I try to walk away and I stumble.
3: Though I try to hide it? It's clear.
1: Alright, Macy Gray is a singer she's from Ohio she actually represented Ohio on the American Song Contest um, and you were on that show as well I was and so she was she was the Ohio rock star basically she was the one who carried the episode as the rock star her real name is Natalie Renee McIntyre so here's another example of a stage name Mm. and she's got this raspy raspy singing style and yeah fully influenced by Billie Holiday and her voice is just awesome yeah so she released 10 studio albums 10 and received five Grammy Award nominations she won a Grammy for this song which was off her debut album 1999, the album's called On How Life Is and basically here's how it goes, the song I'm gonna grab my guitar so it does the whole song in D, gets to the bridge, modulates slightly for the bridge but coming out of the bridge it goes back to the D for the pre-chorus i off cause I'm dreaming That's the motion. Now it modulates a half step and in that moment the whole song changes. It like opens up. It's almost like the sky it stops raining. That's what it feels like. And it's actually this super common technique in music where you take again sorry for the theory, but you take the five chord of the new key and you just play that chord and all of a sudden you feel like you're in a new world and so that's my first one. It's a half-step key change, Macy Gray, I try and I just absolutely love it because I didn't know what the key change was you know normally I can sit in the car and be like oh that's you uh, know and I was like, what is that? And I had to get my guitar and figure it out. It's very odd but very simple but very satisfying. That's my first one what do you have? I
0: love that I, I first of all, I love that song It's also like the half step modulation all in some ways is like more unusual
1: yeah there's like somehow more magic and artistry to that for me yeah, it's super sneaky. I guess part of the thing about this whole thing is you don't see it coming. When it's a half step, it's a sneaky little thing and you don't see it coming anyway. But then you're like, whoa. And it makes you like lift your head up and go, whoa. You're like, wake up for a
0: second. Totally. I haven't thought about that song in forever. So thank you for bringing that up. Clint, I want to start with Michael Jackson's Man in the Mirror. Oh, yes. Let's go straight to the key change around the two minute and 45 mark.
1: God, I love that so much. It's incredible. (laughs) I remember it so vividly growing up and being like, whoa, that is so cool. What
0: just happened? A couple of things to note. First is that the song is in the key of G through most of the song. I love this progression. G- F sharp over D, mm-hmm. E minor seven, Six. back to the F sharp over D to the C sus two. Can you play that on the guitar? Classic, That's classic,
1: great. classic, classic progression. I mean Classic progression.
0: Yeah. Clint, listen to this. The music was written by Glenn Ballard. Mm-hmm. Who years later would become a legendary songwriter and producer in his own right, maybe best known for co-writing Jagged Little Pill with Alanis Morissette. The lyrics were written by Sade Garrett, who was a vocalist who sang sang with Michael on the song I Can't Stop Loving You, which was a hit single. Mm -hmm. When Quincy Jones, who was the producer, reached out to Garrett and said, Michael is looking for some songs. Michael wasn't just looking for a hit. He was looking for an inspirational anthem. And Garrett and Ballard came through. Michael loved it. And of course, was featured on the follow-up to Thriller, the album Bad, which came out at the end of the summer of 1987. The album would become one of the biggest selling albums of all time. Over 35 million copies sold worldwide. Wow. Back to Man in the Mirror, it's one of only two songs on the album not written by Michael. But this song was Michael's proudest moment on the album. The only quote on the album artwork featured a line from the song. If you want to make the world a better place, take a look at yourself and make a change. Speaking of that line, and one of the touches that make the key change so powerful, it goes from the key of G up a half step to the key of G sharp on the word change. Ha. So, again, just like Macy Gray, this is a half-step
1: modulation. Genius. Genius. What a genius move. I wonder who came up with that idea. I wonder if that was a Quincy, or I wonder if that was a Michael.
0: I agree with you. It was probably a decision made by the producer or the artist.
1: Yeah.
4: Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win.
3: And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package.
4: And guess what, Rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S.
1: Oh, man. All right, what's your second? I don't know. I don't know if it gets better than Michael Jackson, Man in the Mirror. But my (laughs) second one is very subtle. So this one, this is a sneaky little bugger, and I'm going to jump up a whole step now. So okay. the song is Bobby McGee by Janis Joplin. Yes, love this one.
2: Busted flat in Ben Rouge, waiting for a train on I am feeling near as
3: faded as my jeans Bobby
1: And... You're thinking in your head, you're like, there's not a key change in that song. There's no moment in that song that, where it, she just belts out the, the next key. But it's super sneaky. The song, Me and Bobby McGee, is written actually by Chris Kristofferson. It was released posthumously by Janis Joplin. So she died in 1970, and this song was released in 1971. Hmm. It's actually only the second single released posthumously to go to number one and the first one was Sitting on the Dock of the Bay by Otis Redding. That also went to number one after his death. But here's what happens. At the end of the first chorus it just goes up a whole step (laughs) and it's it's one of those things that you definitely don't see coming and really lifts the song. It's a fascinating technique. This is an example of a song that has it in the songwriting process. I think we need to go back to Chris
0: Christopherson's version because this is a real move in country music. Good was
2: easy, Lord, when Bobby sang the blues. Feeling good was good enough for me.
0: Listen to Chris. Good, Good enough, enough for me and Bobby. So this is in a key of A. He modulates up to B.
1: There it is. From the mines of Kentucky. But the casual listener would not even realize that at all. It's funny, we were just
0: talking about it being a, usually a decision made by the producer, but when Chris Christofferson wrote this song, by the way, Chris Christofferson, what a great name. Like Both K's, too. Both K's. It would be a great... DJ name too. Like. Yeah, right. K101, Chris Christopherson. Chris Christopherson in the morning. <laughs> because that's a country example, I'm going to just parenthetically insert Mama, don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys. I love the keychain, the modulation that Willie does in the last verse.
2: Mama, don't let your babies grow God, up. God, I love to Willie. Yeah,
0: so happy place okay this is in the Don't key of
2: d, d but let's skip
0: ahead to the key change make
2: them the doctors and lawyers and such will never stay home and always
0: all right still in the key of d now we're going up to e
2: cowboys like smoky old tunes clear mountain morning
0: this is bad Wailing
2: harmonica. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> By the way, I love this
2: lyric. And them that don't know him won't like him. And them that do sometimes won't know how to take him. He ain't wrong, he's just different. But his pride won't let him do things to make you think he's right. What a great lyric! Oh.
1: It is. It's, it's that's actually very similar to the Janus. It's just a lift. There's no bridge in me and Bobby McGee, and I don't think there's. Right. Is there a bridge in Mama's don't Mama don't let your babies grow up to be cowboys? No. So maybe there's a reason why. Maybe it's like in, in place of the bridge. Yeah, like a bridge is is to to have the listener get away from the main theme so that you can come back to the main theme and have it sound familiar. But right. in lieu of that, maybe this is just a way to. That's a great point.
0: All right, are you ready for my second? Yes, sir. Let's be honest. It wouldn't be an episode of The Age of Question if we didn't spend at least part of our time talking about the Beatles. So allow me to quickly do that. Let's begin here. You're gonna lose that girl.
4: You're gonna lose that
2: girl. Yes, yes, you're gonna lose that girl. You're gonna, lose, yes, yes, you're that gonna girl. lose that girl.
0: Not one of the Beatles' most celebrated songs, but it's one of the more interesting examples of their genius in songwriting. Let me set this up. First the song is in the key of E, but the bridge goes somewhere completely different. It modulates to the key of G. (laughs) Why is that weird? There's no clear relationship between the key of E major and the key of G major. Not friends typically on speaking terms. (laughs) So how do the lads get from E to G without the wheels falling off the bus? The pivot modulation is made by exploiting what's called the flat seven chord in the key of E, which in this case is the D chord. Here's the D. But the D chord tricks our brain into accepting the key change to G. That's the five
1: of G. Yes,
2: yes, I'll make a point of taking her away from you. Watch what you do yeah.
0: Let me break that down one more time. So the chords are E major, G sharp 7, Three. F sharp minor 7 Two. to B7, 5. And even though we're in the key of E, our ear doesn't think it's weird to go to G because of this chord. Right here.
2: Ah,
0: we just geeked out in fairly technical terms, but hopefully you caught at least some of the way in which that was interesting. One more song from the Fab Four. The song is Penny Lane. Mm -hmm. And for this discussion, I want to play excerpts from a YouTube video by the brilliant Dutch musician Paul Davids. Davids does an incredible job of breaking down tasty insights of songwriting brilliance. And he does it here with Penny Lane. This video released about a year ago has 1.5 million views. So maybe you've watched it already. But if you haven't, you should because he boils it down in really simple terms. Here's how he introduces Penny Lane as a brilliant example of masterful chord progression.
2: So I was trying to clean out this storage space when I stumbled upon this little piece of paper over here and believe it or not this was the start to my massive appreciation to the Beatles. It was quite the epiphany. Mm-hmm. This is what I got on my first piano lesson at the conservatory while studying guitar. And it did two things for me. It made me realize I suck at piano. Come on. B major. What kind of key is that? Five sharps. Who who puts who even does that? But maybe more so it made me realize how interesting and lovely the compositions of the Beatles songs actually are. So, we all know these songs. They are in our collective memory, ingrained in our collective memory. We take them for granted, but then when looking closer at the pieces, the arrangements, the compositions, it makes us realize there is so much more going on in the songs. He then goes on to break down the chord progression,
0: which is in the key of B, jaunty and fairly standard progression.
2: Lane, there is a and every head is
0: but this is where Paul gets all geniusy on us. Here's David's again.
3: Penny Lane there is a barber shown photographs With every head he's had a
2: pleasure to know and all the people... it's a B minor chord in the key of B major and it really comes out of nowhere doesn't it so this is something we call a borrowed chord we land a chord from the relative key, the relative key is B minor. So we call this modal mixture, modal interchange, and it doesn't happen that often on the tonic, on the one chord.
0: Okay, it's getting complicated, I know, but stick with it because it's getting good. He plays a B minor in the key of B major. That's weird. But as David's points out, Paul wants you to hear that B minor chord because the orchestration goes away on that chord. So it almost accentuates that particular change the there's the b minor he likes
2: to keep his fire clean.
0: but paul needs to get back to the b so where does he go typically you'd go to the five quarter of the b which is what clint f sharp F sharp but he doesn't. Here's David's again.
2: Alright there is some spicy stuff going on so after that B minor chord he goes to a G sharp in the bass. He keeps that B minor on top and then he puts the G sharp in the bass note creating a G sharp minor 7 flat 5 or half diminished or just B minor over G sharp whatever you wish but it is really unexpected to be honest and then again we go down one more semitone to F sharp creating that F sharp 7 sus 4 to (coughs) F sharp 7. So
0: just checking in, did we lose you? Are we getting too technical? The point is to go from B major to B minor, then to get back to the first setup chord to the top of the verse, which is F sharp, is genius and masterful because you don't realize that something so complicated and weird is happening. And by the way, that's not the only modulation that's happening in the song we've just talked about the verse so far <laughs> from the verse to the chorus there's a modulation from the key of b to the key of a which is down a whole step which is down a whole <laughs> step so it's a modulation usually a modulation goes up this is going down listen to Davis again
2: we go from b major that we just played in the verses to a major <laughs> So where does that come from? Well, apparently from Paul's brain, but how do we get there? How do do we get to that A major chord? So we need a chord that pushes us in the right direction, and we call that a pivot chord. A chord that can be found in both keys. So a chord found in B major and a chord found in A major. That works well all the time. So we know that the V chord really begs us to go someplace. So what is the V chord of A, the new key? That would be E major. Hmm. And E is also in the key of B major. It is the IV chord. So, now we get something very cool. After that, F-sharp us 4
0: It's the E chord. Now, I hope Paul Davids doesn't mind that we shared those clips. He breaks down the song much more eloquently than I could have. I hope you'll check out his videos on YouTube.
1: And and there's a key change at the end of that song. He, he just it keeps modulates the entire chorus up, so that last chorus is a whole step up from the normal A chorus. And all these things that
0: you've listened to that song, dozens and dozens of times, and you don't realize that what he's doing is really complex from a music theory standpoint.
1: But he just does it in such a genius way. Man, that's the gift right there. Making something complex sound easy. And you don't realize it until you start to learn it. It's when you, you have your acoustic guitar around the campfire, and somebody's like, hey, play Penny Lane. You're like, oh, yeah, it's, I got that. W- w- uh, what? You know, that's, that's, that's when you realize it. Holy moly. Totally. Totally. Side note, E major to G major. The modulation in You're Gonna Lose That Girl. Is a minor third modulation. That's also the exact same thing that happens in Eyes of the World by The Grateful Dead. The verse of that song is in E and the chorus is in G. And that, that transition is what takes you. It's A to C to G. Anyway, oh, that's but that's that—that's another exact same example of E major to G major. But what's interesting about that,
0: for me, is as a listener, I'm aware that something interesting has happened. Yep. And maybe it's because they go to the C as the passing chord, as
1: opposed, which is the four, as opposed to the D. Right. Right. That's it. That's why it sounds like it's something's changed. Yeah. Okay, my next one. I'm going to do two in a row because they're great from the same artist. And we know or we love her, ladies and gentlemen, Whitney Houston. Oh, yeah. The queen. The queen. Whitney Houston has sold more records than you can shake a stick at. 200 million. You can't shake a stick at that. Records. Wow. The first one is I Will Always Love You from the Bodyguard soundtrack in 1990. Four, The song was written by none other than Dolly Parton. Most people know that. It reached number one on the Billboard Hot Country charts twice. The first time in June of 1974, then again in October of 1982 with a re-recording of the song for the soundtrack, The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas.
2: If I should stay, I would home
1: so already the song has gone number one twice then 1992 film the bodyguard comes out dolly gave them permission to use the song but she actually hadn't heard it until she's driving down the road and she's in her car and she hears whitney's version of it and she said she had to pull over to the side of the road because she was going to definitely wreck. It was so moving for her. Wow. Which, as a songwriter, when you hear somebody crush a song you wrote, that is like, what a feeling. Incredible. Incredible feeling. Another interesting point about this song was Elvis Presley, in 1974, wanted to record this song. And Dolly was super excited because she was a big Elvis fan. Until Colonel, Colonel Tom Parker his manager said that standing procedure for elvis is when he cuts your song you sign over half of the publishing rights to any song that elvis records right that's that was just the way it was done because it was going to be a hit because elvis was doing it so he gets half the publishing well dolly being wicked smart said i don't think so sir uh and denied Elvis Presley covering her song. Now, it uh, gave her all the money from when Whitney did it. And she said, and I quote, then when Whitney Houston's version came out, I made enough money to buy Graceland, (laughs) which is amazing. But let's get back to Whitney's version. Whitney's version is a soul version of Parton's country version. And it's simmering, it's slow but the magic happens at 3.08. It's so patient, and that's why this is one of the greatest of all time. It is showing off, but when you're Whitney Houston, it feels
0: really good. So, yeah, she makes it almost a spiritual moment.
1: It's the reverb, it's the patience of, it's, it's silent, there's nothing happening. Yeah. And then she does the pickup. let's just talk for a second about being a vocalist when you're by yourself on stage no instruments playing she is determining the key change in this case she has to she has to find the note Correct. in her own head right before the band even comes in exactly right and the longer you wait the harder that is i'm sure whitney houston probably had perfect pitch and she was a inhuman singer yes Such vocal control. Just so incredible. Wow. Now, the second one I want to talk about is almost the exact same move. It's a whole step modulation in the song, I Want to Dance with Somebody. Song came out May 2nd, 1987. It's very similar move in that it's it's a show-offy musical muscle flex at 312. So let's check it out.
0: Interesting, you know, I Will Always Love You comes at 3.08. This one comes at 3.12. It's like, you're three minutes into the song, now we're going to give you something. Like, here, hold my beer.
1: Exactly. Yo, 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 check this out. (laughs) You thought you knew, but you don't know, because here's the next thing. So those are two monster, monster, whole-step key changes from the same artist.
0: Okay, my next pick is a contemporary of the band I just talked about, The Beatles, and a big influence on The Beatles. I'm talking about Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys. The song is, Wouldn't It Be Nice? Oh, yes. It's the opening track on their masterpiece, Pet Sounds, from 1966. So unlike other songs we're discussing today, where the key change happens as the song goes on, like in Whitney's case, around the three-minute mark, the key change in Wouldn't It Be Nice happens just as the song is beginning. The intro is an eight-beat phrase in the key of A. And then a single drum hit, and the song shifts to the key of F. Again, not really a relative to the key of A major at all. It's what's called a remote flat submediant key. This type of key change happens in classical music or in jazz, but it doesn't happen in popular music. That's cool. <laughs> Genius, complicated, and yet very digestible. Just feels right. Yeah.
1: What's, wait, that's weird. That's super weird to have the intro be <laughs> in a different key than the verse. Wow. Huh. Like that's rare. I can't, I can't even think of another song like that. Totally. Okay, my 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 last one is one of the biggest songs ever, I would say. And it's by American rock band Bon Jovi. It was oh. the band's second chart-topping single from their third album, Slippery When Wet, ladies and gentlemen, Living on a Prayer. Written by John Bon Jovi, guitar player Richie Sambora, and Desmond Child. Uh, the single was released in 1986. It was played on every radio station incessantly for the past 30 plus years.
3: To on the
1: Why this may be the greatest key change of all time is for two reasons. One, it jumps up a minor third, which is rare. It completely changes the tonal center. It goes from G to B flat. Those keys do not play well together, and yet it just feels real good. And the other reason this song might have to be number one is that it's out of time as well. So at that moment it anticipates the hit, it drops a beat, and does a key change so not only are you not expecting the modulation in the music but you're also not expecting the change in time at that moment and it's it's the moment that everyone can sing in a bar when or if you're playing it live isn't that interesting in that moment to your point like untrained
0: musicians yep are all of a sudden doing very complex musical
1: moves yeah Let's see, I can't think of. Just it just does it. It goes from a D to a G minor.
0: Whatever it is, it worked. Whatever it is, it worked. Clint, let's go to the comments.
1: Yes. Let's go to the comments.
0: From teacherguy99992000 on Instagram. He says, I love your podcast. Would love to hear your thoughts about the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Clint, any thoughts on the Rock and Roll Hall of
1: Fame? Let's see. I would say that it's not very rock and roll anymore. That's one of my thoughts. Is that they'll let country in? I mean, any Joe Bag of Donuts in? Yeah, Joey Bag Donuts, come on in, buddy. I tell you, I would, I would be honored if I got in the Rock and Roll Hall of
0: Fame. You would accept that invitation. You would go to the ceremony. I would. Have you been to the museum in Cleveland? I did go once. There was a Bruce Springsteen exhibit. I went one time and I loved it. I love seeing, you know, they've got, you know, John Lennon's guitar and they've got Elvis's suits sparkly suits (laughs) and it's really cool to see that historical accoutrement paraphernalia is not the right word
1: let's go to the
0: comments all right another provocation in response to our episode about the greatest outlier hits Mm. where we talked about the hit songs that became famous and actually sounded nothing like the rest of the music from that band eric writes i've got an age-old question for you guys why do Rich and Clint never think about Jane's addiction? <laughs> Jane says is the perfect example of the kind of song Clint was talking about. I give up, he says.
1: Oh, that's true. He's right. That's true. That's a great, great choice. Oh, man.
3: Jane says, i say. with Sergio. You treat me like
0: a red. I say, Eric, don't give up. And you're right. Jane Says <laughs> is the perfect example of a song that became a massive hit for a band. It was actually a major departure from the sound of the rest of the band's catalog. Clint, a- anything to say on Jane Says? That is
1: just like No Rain. It's almost the exact same example. So you're right. Ah, oh, I missed that one. Perfect.
0: Maybe we should play Rich and Clint are Boneheads just for <laughs> Eric. <laughs> this is for you, buddy. <laughs> Clint Clint. For my final pick, I'd like to call our phone-a-friend MVP of the show, Jeff Simons. Nice. One of my earliest memories of really considering this topic of the key change is from a conversation I had with Jeff many years ago. And if you've heard him on the show, you know that anytime you talk to him, you get smarter. That was certainly the case when he and I discussed this song by Stevie Wonder. It's a song called Evil. Let's hear a little bit of it.
2: Eva, why have you engulfed so many hearts? Eva,
0: Eva Before we get Jeff on the phone, let me give some background on the song. It's from his 1972 album, Music of My Mind, which is the album that many see as the turning point in his career. It's the first one for Motown where he had total creative control. And it's the prelude to his remarkable run of four breathtaking albums from 1972 to 1976, beginning with the next album, Talking Book, and culminating in Songs in the Key of Life. Let's call Jeff and talk to him about why evil is in particular so remarkable. Hello? Jeff Simons, you're on the age-old question.
3: Oh my gosh. Another wish fulfillment
0: day. How are you, friends? Well, we're so glad to catch you. We know you're in the car, but we're having a discussion today about the greatest key changes of all time. And
3: <laughs> I love
0: it. I'm interested in hearing your picks for the greatest key change. But before we do that, I want you to talk a little bit about the Stevie Wonder song Evil. Because as I was just saying to Clint, one of my first memories of really thinking about this particular topic of key changes, was you telling me or enlightening me about this particular song and and what makes it so genius. So talk to us about Evil.
3: So Evil is the last song on music of my mind, which is a really underrated, just amazing Stevie Wonder record. It's the first one of the five in a row he did where he recorded every instrument, 21 years old, and he's got creative control from Motown, and he's just flexing. And Evil starts as this, like, kind of syrupy ballad. I mean, like, the lyrics are a little silly, right? Like, evil, why do you destroy so many lives? But it starts in C, and then it goes to C7 to F, and it does it twice, but then it uses C to E major 7 to A minor 7 to D minor 7 to get to F. and does the whole thing again, and it uses that one, three, six, four change to get up another fourth to B-flat. It does it again and ends the song, and then it's an E-flat. By the time we get to E-flat, the, th- the third chord of that four chord change is C again, so it ends where it begins, but it actually changes keys four times over the course of four minutes. Oh. And it's just one of those moments where the first time he does, it, you're like, "Oh, that was pretty cool." Then he does it again, and then he does it again, and when he ends up restarts, you're just laughing. You're like, "That's just because uh... you know." There's no way Stevie Wonder sat down and said, "I will explore the mathematical nature of the circle of fifths and the twelve tones." He's just playing, but the, the fact that he was able to just find his way back to where he started by accident while writing this like beautiful, humble ballad, it's just great. It's just a great example of super complicated without being super annoying, which is kind of hard to pull off. Well, first I want to know, um, I assume Clint picked uh, Living on a Prayer? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> of course, because it's amazing. I mean, that, that song is so silly, but good Lord, is that key change unbelievable. Like it's just crazy how perfect it is for that song and that moment. And I think Banjay goes to that impossibly high note. Minor third. I really wish I I mean, that's before auto tune, really, and, and before you could digitally just put your voice up there. Like, yeah,
0: that's the know, real deal.
3: I want to hear the outtakes of that note <laughs> more than just about anything. Like the first three or four attempts when he's just like. <laughs> They're like oh, well,
0: maybe one more time. Yeah, where the engineers like, hey John, that was really good. Let's try it one more time just for safety. First of all, wow. <laughs> um, not a huge
3: key change guy. I mean, a lot of the, a lot of the songwriters I really love.
0: Stay away from the key you know, change. Like, you
3: know, I'm trying to think if they're a Dylan song with a key change in it. I can't imagine that there is.
0: Right, or Tom um, Petty.
3: Yeah, Petty's not big on that. Neither's always Costello.
0: It is interesting to think about your like your desert island discs. Your the artists that that you go back to again and again are not big modulation bands. And uh, I don't have an a thought on
1: that just I think it's mostly it's a lot about pop music. It's not about it's it's done in country music a lot and it's done in pop music a lot. But it's not done in rock. It's not done right. in Grunge. It's not done in sixties rock right. and roll. It's just it it isn't. It's it wasn't a technique used.
3: That's true. that's a good point. I'm trying to think of like a classic. Like give me some of the of the classic pop songs that you, you all have chosen.
0: I will always love you.
3: Of course. That's hilarious. That one's so great. That's pretty cool. What a great topic.
0: Well, Jeff, thank you as always for joining on the age old question and we we can't wait to do it again.
3: Man, I look forward to it.
0: All right, talk all to right. you soon, buddy. Bye Jeff. Thanks. Bye talk you. Bye. <laughs> right. Okay. It's come to the part of the show where we need to choose what is the best key change of all time.
1: I'm going to say living on a prayer because it's so universal and so odd. What do you say? I
0: have to go man in the mirror where I started. That key change is Yep. is brilliant and it's maybe what makes the
1: song such a special hit for me. Yeah. And it's that seven chord that sets it up for me, that does it. It's like that dominant seven thing. And then it's it's sort of it's sort of got that that airiness in it too. It's like it lifts and then it pauses for a second and then it slams down on the key change. So that is that's nice. That feels real good. Yes.
0: Now We've we've made our selections. I'm gonna go quickly to maybe a postscript, a PS on this episode, Great. which is that you and I have a song featured in the Shrek 2 soundtrack. Mm. And we've talked about it a number of times on this podcast, and it's the song that you and I wrote. It was produced by Andy Zula, and it features a modulation. And we didn't write the song with a modulation. This was a choice that Andy made. And I'm gonna skip ahead in the song to the modulation. Okay? But I'm on my way'm my, way. my, way. my, way. my way Well, we hope you had fun, as much fun as we did. We certainly did have a lot of fun on this one. And we hope you'll join us next time when we answer another age old question. Follow us on Instagram at the age old question. Facebook,
1: the age old question.
0: We hope this conversation has sparked some ideas and thoughts of
1: your own. Let us know in the comments. But let's be kind people. Yeah. No hating. No hating. Also, if you're digging the podcast, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash the age old question and consider becoming a part of our age old question family. With your support, we'll be able to answer many more age old questions. Thanks.